1: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick and it's Saturday time to dig into the vault for an older episode of the show This is our episode on the Silurian hypothesis originally published January 18th, 2022. Hope you enjoy Welcome to stuff to blow your mind a production of iHeartRadio Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about uh, a subject that I've actually had on the radar for a while. This is something that was uh, making the rounds on science blogs a few years back. And it has been suggested by a number of different listeners. So I'm glad we're finally coming around to it. Uh, I think I had some hesitation for a while that I want to briefly explain right at the beginning here. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about an idea known as the Silurian hypothesis. Uh, and just to give you a, a little bit of uh, background knowledge, we spent several minutes before recording today trying to look up uh, how they pronounce Silurian on Doctor Who, because I was like, <laughs> sure, they might use some kind of British English variation where they say Silurian Uh, But uh, but alas, we could not ever get the doctor to say it. Right. I watched, I think, an entire
2: scene where one of the more recent doctors was chatting with a Silurian. Uh, or Silurian however you, however <laughs> you will, and they 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 it was like they were trying not to say it like if they said uh-huh. it one would would pop up and and crawl out of the screen or something uh yeah. they used they referred to a, another alien race that wasn't even in the scene, and I don't even think was part of that
0: episode and then <laughs> and all these other terms, but yeah they they were just trying to mess with me so this is a topic that I have been interested in covering for uh quite a while it's been it's been a few years now. But, Rob, when you suggested it, I realized that I'd always been hesitating and and not wanting to quite go ahead with it. And I think I realized the reason for that, which is that when I saw people mentioning this paper on the Internet, it was clear to me that a lot of them were getting exactly the wrong takeaway from it. Like they were latching on to a very shallow understanding of the concept and, and running off in a, in a di- very different direction than the authors intended.
2: Not only uh, a different direction than they intend, but a direction they specifically
0: say do not go in. Yeah, exactly. They specifically say that they are not trying to, to make. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, to, to clarify what we're talking about here, the Silurian Hypothesis paper uh, begins with a fascinating question. In the words of the authors, quote, if an industrial civilization had existed on Earth many millions of years prior to our own era, what traces would it have left, and would they be detectable today? that That's the question at the heart of this paper, and obviously this is a tantalizing premise you know it sets your mind racing with images of impossibly weird organisms you know uh, like land dwelling octopi and stuff in in their own weird cities and and what kind of technology would they have things that are as alien as anything you could imagine on another planet except they would have all been from here native to planet earth dating back millions of years into prehistory But while this is a really attractive, imaginative exercise, I I think the first order of business when talking about this subject is to be clear that the Silurian hypothesis paper is about coming up with a framework for detecting physical traces of industrial civilizations and understanding how long those traces last. So it's about – trying to say, what are the right questions to ask when you're when you're looking at a planet and saying, how could we tell if there had been a civilization on this planet a long time ago? It is not a paper arguing that there was, in fact a lost civilization deep in Earth's past. Uh, so it's not evidence for lizard men, ancient aliens, <laughs> uh, Graham Hancock junk, a- Atlantis, or any of that stuff. But I would say in its true form, it is a really interesting question.
2: Yeah, yeah. At at heart, this episode is is not going to be about scientific evidence for lizard men civilizations in the hollow earth. So, if you're looking for that, this is this is not the episode for you. But, but yeah, what I love about it is that it takes this sort of fantastic idea and then examines it reasonably, and that examination illuminates some very interesting geologic, uh, climatic, and uh, astrophysical considerations. So, uh, you know, setting aside pseudoscience and pseudo archaeology here, Uh, but on the other hand. I think if you if you're looking for some sci-fi fun, this topic and this episode will also still engage you. Um, but it, it is interesting how, uh, from a certain perspective, you can imagine people being drawn into it by just sort of this sci-fi idea, this idea that does lean lend itself uh, well to sort of uh, conspiracy theorist mindsets, and then realizing actually this paper is about geology. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and 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 climate. the history of our planet and also uh, i guess kind of you know in many cases kind of a downbeat uh, message about the lasting impact of human technology on our planet uh and on the other hand too how forgettable we may be uh, from the, the standpoint of geological history yeah so if you're on board for all of that uh you've come to the right place so uh, real quick, I do want to just discuss the uh, the Doctor Who reference here, since since uh, uh, the authors uh, Schmidt and Frank took the uh, the name for the hypothesis from the Doctor Who species, the Silurians, who uh, first popped up in the 1970 series Doctor Who. And these Silurians – I think now you've got me saying Silurians. Oh, I'm sorry. So, I'm probably going to be be stuck this way.
0: Well, Um, it it gets even worse because – so, they take the name of the hypothesis from this Doctor Who series where mm -hmm. these creatures show up. But then they say explicitly in the paper, you know, the range we would really be looking at would actually be after the Silurian geologic period. (laughs) Because the Silurian period – is something it's like a uh, roughly 20 million year period that's more than 400 million years ago i don't remember it's, it's like 440 something to 420 something i think uh, roughly, but if you were seriously looking for evidence of lost civilizations in earth's ancient past, you'd probably be looking for things like after about four hundred million years ago coming you know forward in time from the Devonian period when you could have the the, the reasonable biological basis for land dwelling animals that might have evolved complex technological intelligence, yes. Uh,
2: But at any rate, in in Doctor Who, uh, especially in that uh, original 1970 uh, uh, appearance, uh, the Silurians are these kind of lizard men. Um, They they factor into this plot with the third Doctor, played by John Pertwee, who lived 1919 through 1996. And then they subsequently pop up again with the fifth Doctor, played by Peter Davison, and the 11th Doctor, played by Matt Smith. And then more recently, the 13th Doctor, played by Jodie Whittaker. So this is just the TV show. I can't speak to the various books and audio dramas that have come out. And their look has changed throughout the film. Um, you know, they are, in essence, this cold-blooded, prehistoric, reptile-like species with significant technological advancement that uh, they—I they, think they end up entering various states of suspended animation to avoid, uh, you know, major changes on Earth, changes to the climate, et cetera. Um, and then they reemerge and encounter the Doctor, Um so uh yeah, they're they're one of the many uh interesting alien and otherworldly species uh that pop up. Uh though I guess with the, the Silurians, one of the the key things is that they're they're not pure aliens. They are they're sort of the originals. They're they're original Terrans, original earthlings, uh that are then encountered by
0: these uh, evolved apes that come much later. I mean to to them we are the aliens, yeah. Uh, right, we're, we're like these weird future creatures. Uh, the the image you attach, and I gotta be honest, I'm not a huvioid, so I, I don't know the the lore. But the picture you're showing me of the Silurians, they look like they look like if the world was all creature from the Black Lagoon, and there was a leather face of the creature from the Black Lagoon civilization. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're definitely Doctor Who creatures of this era. Which, which
2: I I, I tend to love these costumes. I know they were working with uh, with 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 budget limitations here, uh, but uh, yeah, the the aliens and robots of this era really really call to me. Now, you say they look kind of fish-like. Bear in mind, and I'm sure some Doctor Who listeners, uh, Doctor Who viewers will, will, will chime in here, but I believe they're related to another species that pops up on the show that live in the water. I think they're like the sea devils or something. Uh, mm. uh, but these guys are not aquatic in nature. I think I got that right.
0: The sea devil. Oh, wait, so is that like a, a, a bunch of intelligent Eurypterids or something? <laughs> uh, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this uh, 2018 paper...
2: The uh, Silurian hypothesis, would it be possible to detect an industrial civilization in the geological record? This was published in the journal, International Journal of Astrobiology. Uh, It draws its name from that uh, Doctor Who episode. And the authors here, they point out that they, they may be the first to seriously consider whether a technologically advanced civilization could have evolved prior to Homo sapiens on Earth, though the authors uh, do stress that this is a to the best of their knowledge situation. So you know, mm. it, it's entirely possible somebody was batting around the idea previously, uh, but this may be the first.
0: And certainly this, was the, this one really made a splash when it came out. Okay, so the two authors here would be uh, Adam Frank and Gavin A. Schmidt, right? And Frank is a uh, is a physicist and astronomer, and Schmidt is a uh, climate scientist, right? Right.
2: Schmidt is a climatologist, climate modeler, and director of uh, the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York, and co-founder of the award-winning climate science blog Real Climate. Frank is a uh, physicist, astronomer, and writer whose work has appeared in such publications as the New York Times and NPR, and I believe we've actually referenced his work on the podcast before. Uh, he also has a, a book, uh, he has a few books, including The Constant Fire, The End of the Beginning, and Light of the Stars. Those are all nonfiction science books, of course. So to be clear, we're talking about two very legitimate scientists and science communicators, not, uh, you know, not a couple of, uh, of quacks who are staring into the hollow earth or anything. So the authors here begin with a, a very reasonable consideration of the search for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, and then this is something we've, we've touched on the show plenty of times before. Ours is the only model of life, but we generally consider technological advancement to be a hallmark of intelligent life and more to the point, something we can search for signs of uh, concerning other worlds and other star systems. Uh, you know, in, anytime you can, you can figure out how to look for signs of, of uh, advanced and expansive energy harvesting or consumption, uh, that might be a way for us to tell if there's something else out there that is significantly advanced.
0: Right. And it also might be a A simple prerequisite for contact, because Mm -hmm. uh, they're talking about. uh, So they started off by looking at this as an astrobiology question. You know, you're you're looking for signs of life elsewhere in the universe, and of course, the the search for intelligent life in the universe, in practical terms, what's accessible to us really boils down to the search for life capable of harnessing radio technology within our galaxy. You know, you Mm -hmm. could probably find maybe. Uh, chemical biosignatures in in the atmospheres of exoplanets that would give you an indication that there's some kind of life there, maybe bacterial in nature or whatever. Uh, but if you're looking for intelligent life, you're you're probably talking about radio of some kind, right? And so the kinds of civilizations that develop radio communication technology. Would fall under the classification of industrial civilizations, and these are what author the authors define as civilizations that have the ability to harness energy on a global scale. And they bring up how this actually feeds into one of the the recurring uh, characters in in the astrobiology literature, the Drake equation.
2: That's right, yeah. They bust out the Drake equation and, uh, of course, consider how, how some of the takeaways relate to Earth, especially the notion that over the course of a planet's existence, multiple industrial civilizations can theoretically arise over the span of time that life exists there. And then we have to factor in questions over, you know, how many times life itself may have evolved or started out on Earth before our last universal common ancestors got going. Uh, The possibility of a shadow biosphere and the idea that species like dolphins may suggest independent evolutions of intelligence on Earth. Um, You know, so we're left with this idea that, yeah, theoretically, uh, given the the footprint of life on Earth, you could have had multiple intelligences uh, evolve and arise during that time period. That's certainly what the Drake equation uh, seems to allow for concerning other worlds.
0: Well, yeah, and I – you know, so I I kind of love the Drake equation. It's a famous tool that I really enjoy thinking about because uh, because it does the job of taking a question that seems – Like, we could not possibly answer it. The question is, how many active technological civilizations are there in the Milky Way (laughs) galaxy? And, you know, if you're being honest with yourself, the correct answer to that is, how the hell should I know? Like, there's Mm -hmm. no way to answer that question at all. But what the Drake equation does is break that unanswerable question down into a number of other questions that you then multiply together to get an estimated number. And many of those smaller questions themselves could perhaps be answered. And in fact, some of them have been answered since the Drake equation was first formulated. Uh, so so it decomposes an unsolvable problem of are there aliens out there and if so how many into a series of smaller problems at least some of which are solvable maybe all of which are you know you could come up with some kind of reasonable guess about uh, and so the classic formulation of the Drake equation is to get your number of civilizations in in the Milky Way you would multiply a bunch of different terms together so one is the rate of average uh, the average rate of star formation you know how much do you get stars. Times the fraction of stars that have planets, times the average number of planets per star, times the fraction of planets that develop life, times the portion of those life systems that gain intelligence, times the portion of those intelligent life systems that develop technological means to communicate, times – and then here's a really interesting term – quote, the length of time L over which such civilizations release detectable signals – and it's this very last term that I think very often gets overlooked by people who are thinking about, you know, are there aliens out there and and how could we know? I think we often tend to assume that, well, once there are aliens with technological means to communicate, that's just like a, you know, it, progress only extends from there. Civilizations just continue to get bigger and their capabilities expand and they spread out from there. But uh, I don't know, there, there could be severe limitations on the length of a radio receptive or radio broadcasting civilization. Maybe they only exist for a few hundred years because one thing we know is that our uh, technological civilization is, is just a tiny blip on the history of planet Earth, even a tiny blip on the history of life on planet Earth. Earth is 4.5 billion years old. There's been life on Earth for most of that time. Uh, The authors here estimate that there has been complex life on Earth's land surface for uh, only about 400 million years, so that's only a fraction of the entire history of Earth, but that, but 400 million years is still a gargantuan amount of time compared to the length of human civilization. They say industrial civilization, you know, by their metric has probably existed for only about 300 years. This is since roughly the beginning of mass production methods for, for things. And so if humans were wiped out by a global mass extinction of some kind in the near future – our industrial civilization would just be this tiny little splinter, this blip of 300 years on a history of a currently 4.5 billion year old planet. Yeah. And so
2: from there, we get into the question, OK, if, if you have an industrial civilization like this, it is just a blip. Uh, uh, would we be able to see it? And if we could see it, what would we look for? And this is, you know, this is pretty much the the meat of of the paper here, uh, analyzing this sort of question, which which is great because it it again it gets into sort of uh, you know sci fi friendly concepts. It's uh, useful uh, in considering uh, the evolution of life and uh, the existence of uh, intelligent life on other worlds, and it also shines a light on what we are doing now and where we are. and And I think also. Uh, you know illustrates nicely illustrates this idea that um, that, uh, that that the technology is not just this uh, the, this uh, this this ramp to Star Trek you know or this ramp to the culture or any of our more optimistic sci-fi dreams like there are there are severe challenges uh, and of course there's there's always the risk of extinction
0: that's exactly right and one thing that's funny is we don't know. Whether the uh, the rise of technological civilization should generally be understood as, on average, a linear process where it just sort of goes mm-hmm. in one direction and keeps going in that direction, or whether it should be understood as, on average, a cyclical process <laughs> where yeah. you get a rise in technological civilization and then it disappears for some reason. You can imagine what some of those reasons might be um and uh, and then maybe rises again out of the out of the same biosphere i mean either one i think is is a perfectly plausible model to entertain as like what usually happens in the universe uh and we just don't have the uh we don't have the evidence to really have an opinion on that yeah i mean a lot of it just
2: comes back to the the the, the, the fact that again we are the only model Of intelligent life uh, and certainly technologically advanced uh, intelligent life that we have to look at so we have nothing to compare us to yeah and we don't know what's going to happen to us in the long run right so uh let's get into the i guess the sort of the first part of the paper and and i do want to drive home that if you want to just uh, go right to the paper yourself and dive in. Um, you just do a search for the title, and uh, you can find it hosted on NASA. They have a NASA has a as a PDF of this that's uh, very easily
0: accessible. Um, uh, you can also read it in full on the Cambridge University Press website, which I think is the press behind the uh, the journal, yeah. the International Journal Journal of Astrobiology. And yeah, so it's all on there and with uh, references hyperlinked and all that, which is nice. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So
2: if you hit a paywall, don't don't give up. It's out there. Um, and I believe Adam Frank also wrote a
0: piece for What the Atlantic, uh, where he nicely summarizes some of the ideas here. Oh, yeah. And he also tells a funny story about how they arrived at writing the paper, because I think he says uh, he showed up in Gavin Schmidt's office to to talk about um, to talk more about astrobiology, like Drake mm-hmm. equation type questions. And he's like, OK, uh, so we, we, we know we've got one uh, industrial civilization on Earth. And then Schmidt responded by saying, how do we know we're the only one? I think just hitting that early, like, wall, like, wow, and then that turned into the paper. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's quite a paper.
2: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. So uh, let's yeah let's get into the first part of it, which uh, I think you can loosely think of as just sort of a look at the limits of our vision. Right. So they point out that for the last 2.5 million years, uh, there's widespread physical evidence of things like climate change, soil horizons. This is where one layer of soil differs from below or above. Speaking to changes recorded in the soil, uh, as well as archaeological evidence of non-homo sapiens cultures, such as uh, the Neanderthals. And this 2.5 million year period is known as the quaternary. Now, going back before the quaternary, again, uh, more than 2.5 million years ago, the land evidence is harder to come by. You have to depend on drilling, mining, and occasional exposed sections of the earth. Uh, Even in the ocean, sediment evidence apparently only goes back to around 170 million years ago.
0: Yeah. And I think for me, this was actually one of the most interesting parts of the paper because I would say if you just go by standard intuition, a person might think, uh, you know, if there had been a civilization on Earth, uh, you know, 200 million years ago or something like that, uh, wouldn't wouldn't that just be completely obvious? Like we'd see evidence of it mm-hmm. all around us. Wouldn't there be ruins and all that, you know, their stone hinges, their skyscrapers and everything like that? Uh, actually it's not – it might not be as obvious as you might think. In fact, it, the evidence of it could be rather scarce. And
2: this runs counter to our sci-fi uh, imaginings, right? Because yeah, when yeah. you encounter elder civilizations in, uh, in other works, like there's usually some sort of a ruin or a vault or some sort of mysterious monolith or something. Like the idea – that the elders would just be gone entirely, like just erased, not by some sort of a conspiracy or by some sort of, a, you know, alien shenanigans, but just because things don't last that long. That's a, it's an alien concept from a, to many of our, uh, again, to many of our creative
0: visions of, of what the, the future and the past may be exactly so we think well you know there are ruins of civilizations from thousands of years ago but that's thousands of years ago that's nothing in geological mm-hmm. time the surface of the i mean look at look at what a map of the land formations on earth just you know 60 million years ago looked like it, it's like you know the the surface of the earth is not fixed and constant. This is a geologically active planet. So would there be ruins all around us? Would evidence of a, a civilization from hundreds of millions of years ago just be totally obvious? Uh, I I think I probably buy the answer that the authors give here, which is that no, it would probably not be totally obvious. In fact, it might be incredibly difficult to find evidence of at all. Uh, and so one of the the interesting points the authors make here is that the, the exposed land surface of Earth, of course, is geologically very young on average. They cite evidence from a study by Matman et al. in 2009 that the oldest large patch of land surface on Earth is probably in the Negev Desert. And that's only about 1.8 million years old. 1.8 million years, I mean, compared to the history of civilization, is a long time. But that's – Again, it's like nothing in geological time. It's a tiny fraction of of Earth history. So if we wanted to find remnants of a civilization from, say, hundreds of millions of years ago, you probably would not find that on the surface of the Earth. You'd have to look for it in in exposed geological strata from, from previous eras. And even then, you can't just count on the fact that you would be finding fossils of that civilization all over the place.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, they, uh, they hit on something we've discussed in the show before, which is of course that the fossil record is inherently incomplete because fossilization only occurs when conditions are just right. Um, yeah, they point out that that of all the dinosaurs that ever lived and there were a ton of them you know yeah. uh you know the the era of the dinosaurs taken as as one gigantic gigantic monolith just dwarfs anything that, uh, that 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 humanity has ever occupied uh you know it is a it is a cathedral and and we're we're not even like a child's dollhouse uh, uh sort of a situation here um so uh, you know, out of, out of all of those uh, dinosaurs that ever lived, there are only a few thousand near complete specimens. And so the authors here contend that given the rarity of fossilization, a species as short-lived as Homo sapiens might not make it into the fossil record at all. And of course, for fossilization to mean anything to us or to, you know, anybody who's doing, an, uh, doing you know, some sort of an investigation of a planet or our planet, those fossilizations would have to survive and then they would have to be found.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and so, again, this might be pushing against your intuition. You would say, like, wait a minute, there's there's there's, there's signs of human life all over the surface of Earth. And and we have, a, you know, at least a few thousand uh, <laughs> complete dinosaur fossils, enough to have museums of natural history with dinosaur fossils in places all over the world. Uh, surely you'd expect more. But dinosaurs existed for almost 200 million years. Human civilization again is like it's a few thousand years at this point. Yeah. And so the problem here is like we have trouble comparing the odds because you're not realizing how many millions of times more the dinosaur bodies got to roll the dice than ours would.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, another thing I'm going to touch on is that is is the example of technology. Uh, And they point out how rarely complex early examples of human technology are ever found. So uh, if you're thinking, well, surely we would find one of these factories or something that was made by one of these factories that a previous uh, civilization might have had, well, not necessarily.
0: Yeah, surely my rice cooker would be found hundreds of millions (laughs) of years in the future. But yeah, they they mention several reasons why eh, that's maybe not as clear as you might assume. So they say urbanization – That currently represents less than 1% of the Earth's surface. So that's a limitation on the deposition side of of creating a fossil record of our current civilization. Only small parts of Earth's surface are actually inhabited by humans. That, That sounds counterintuitive, but it's true and then they point out that uh quote exposed sections and drilling sites for pre-quaternary surfaces are orders of magnitude less as fractions of the original surface so human civilization currently only fills a small portion of earth's surface right now and we only access tiny fractions of earth's previous surface through through various kinds of drilling and you know access through exposure to rock strata so there, there's just like extreme selection uh, filters on both sides, on the deposition and on the excavation side.
2: Yeah, it would be kind of like uh, even if you, you knew somehow with some certainty that there was a, that, that there was a technological civilization during this time in, in the ancient, ancient past. Uh, yeah, you would, you would have, to, you'd have to really know exactly where to drill down to hit
0: them. You couldn't just expect to randomly do it. Unless you did a, a lot of, of drilling and digging and and, and excavation. Yeah. Um, but, but, but. So what we've been talking about here is uh, challenging the, the intuition that you would just be finding uh, physical fossil remnants and artifacts of this civilization from hundreds of millions of years ago all over the place. And I think they do a very good job of knocking that down. But, of course, it is not hopeless because they say while well, our chance of finding the physical remains of, of a hypothetical Silurian civilization might be very low, there would be other traces of the existence of that civilization that would be preserved in the geologic record, and uh, you you would have a very good chance of finding those traces.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's what most of the rest of the paper deals with. I do want to po- point out one other thing that they, they bring up in passing that I thought was interesting. Uh, they point out that that you could certainly make an argument for or against the evolution of intelligent life on a world based on the probable evolution of species that are in the fossil record, but that they would be focusing on um, physiochemical tracers for previous industrial uh, civilizations. So I hadn't really thought about this, but like the idea of like looking at, say, dinosaur uh, fossils and saying, well, we don't have evidence that they evolved in an, into an intelligent technological species, but if we but we can make a, an argument based on this fossil and this fossil, fossil that they were headed in that direction.
0: I, I feel like even that's the kind of thing that probably wouldn't be quite as clear as your intuition might lead you to assume. Right. Because I mean, like intelligence in mammals ar- arose very rapidly in, mm-hmm. in geologic time.
2: Yeah, so again, we reach this situation where the, the fossil record could just be missing that snapshot entirely. So this all leads yeah, to the next, the next major question. Given the limits of what we can detect in the geochemical record, what exactly could we look for on a planet to see if an industrial society ever existed there? And uh, yeah, that's what the bulk of the paper focuses on. So in the case of Earth, if an organized intelligent society evolved during the pre-quaternary time, Uh, but they didn't reach the level of an industrial society, there simply would be no record of them as far as this paper is concerned.
0: Right. They're they're looking for the kinds of uh, chemical, material, and climate-type changes that would leave a trace in the geologic record, and that would primarily be a function of... Of industry, basically, of energy production of uh, of material working, things like metals and plastics and the uh, and the methods of harnessing energy for industrial use
2: I was reminded of our episodes on fire technology. Uh, because uh, if listeners may remember, we discussed, well, could something that evolved in the water or, or on a water world, could they ever really get any kind of advanced technology going if they didn't have access to the surface? And that seems to be a factor here as well, as they're only looking at the period during which something
0: could have evolved on land. Yeah, so you could maybe have advanced intelligence in the water, but it's maybe this is just a lack of imagination on our part. You know, you always need to be aware of the the limitations of your vision. But it does seem hard to imagine advanced technology under the water because, like, if you don't have fire, uh, you can't do metalworking, or metalworking is very difficult. I don't, I don't know. It just seems harder to imagine how technology like we understand it could come about in the water. But again, you know, limits of our vision.
2: Yeah. So they say, "quote The focus is thus on the period between the emergence of complex life on land in the Devonian, four hundred million years ago, in the Paleozoic era, and the mid Pliocene, uh, and that's around four million years ago."
0: Yeah, because if it was much more recent, you'd you'd probably get into the area where you'd start to expect to actually see those kinds of uh, remnants and artifacts that that we were talking about, right?
2: So they get into the discussion of what we might look for, and uh, they have it nicely divided up. The first one is, uh, well, they basically have two broad categories and then some some details uh, on that category. Uh, The first big one, though, would be uh, looking at the geological footprint of the Anthropocene. So as we've discussed in the show before, there's an argument to be made that the impact of human civilization on the environment and the geologic record constitutes its own geologic era, the Anthropocene. So not all of the changes would be recognizable millions of years later, but some would be.
0: Right. So human activity at this point is uh, is large scale enough that we are making changes to the Earth that uh, that are that are widespread, or you could even say global, and. I was going to say permanent, not permanent, but extremely long-lived, you know, going way into the future, you will be able to find signs in the rocks and the ice and the sediment, you know, the things on Earth that persist over long periods of time that will leave records of what we did to the Earth in just the past 300 years or so. Right.
2: And, uh, and I, I, as we've probably mentioned before, the uh, Anthropocene is not a an official geological era, uh, as much as any of these things can be, uh, you know, official. Uh, it seems like when you're talking about geologic terms, it's even more ridiculous when you consider it such a, a small part of geologic history that we occupy. Uh, but th- there's a lot of compelling evidence for it, and you often see it discussed, especially when we're talking about the changes uh, that, that humans have made to the planet and are still making
0: to the planet and how they may show up in the geologic record. And just to be super clear, the majority of the changes we're talking about of this kind would not be changes like physical alterations of the Earth's surface. We're not talking about like records of people digging holes and building mm-hmm. stuff. We're talking about records of like changes to the uh, to the level of different carbon isotopes in in geological strata and things like that. Right.
2: Now, they also hit upon something that, that I thought was really interesting and, and in a way almo- almost encouraging, uh, the sustainability paradox. So the idea here is that, of course, the longer human civilization lasts, especially technological civilization, the greater the geologic signal of its impact. Again, that that lasting those lasting signs in the environment, not the faces they carved into the mountains, uh, but impacts, uh, again, on uh, uh, that, are, that are geochemical in nature. Um, So that signal increases, but the longer a human civilization lasts, the more sustainable it must become in order to survive. And this is, of course, the reality we're living in right now. If a civilization survives this test and becomes more sustainable, then that signal
0: grows weaker. Right. So it's almost like the strength of the signal left for future people to discover is directly proportional to how suicidal that civilization is. Right. Like uh, the 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 more it is just burning through fossil fuel resources and the rate of that, the stronger the signal will be. And so a civilization at some point, they say, will, will naturally tend to attenuate for a couple of reasons, either – it realizes it can't keep going at that rate or it's going to cause climate damage to itself. So it it will naturally switch to more sustainable uh, uh, energy sources that are harder to detect in the future. Or it, of course, does so much damage to itself that its signal naturally is reduced. Right, right. So – so basically, coming
2: back to what you said earlier, it's not just that there there's going to be a sign, there's going to be this signal, uh, this footprint of a civilization uh, in the in the uh, you know the geochemical record. It's it's also that it may just be very short. It may be little. It, it's not going to be this. Uh, it's not going to be a symphony. It's going to maybe be a note or two. So uh, basically, the idea being that, that 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 a real a strong much stronger argument for uh, aliens existing uh, and having some sort of role or some sort of advanced technology having some sort of role on Earth in the, uh, in, in the ancient history uh, would not be, look at the pyramids, I think uh, aliens did this, or I think uh, you know, ancient for scientists reason, did yeah. this. <laughs> it would be pointing at, say, a blip in, uh, or an increase in global uh, temperatures during a certain period of time and saying, I think the aliens did this, or I think the advanced technology
0: in question did this. I mean, even then, I think that would be a very speculative and and difficult to prove hypothesis. It would be kind of just like unfalsifiable speculation. But that that would perhaps be the more likely type of signal you would find if there had been alien intervention than, you know, specific artifacts. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, well, let's get into some of the specifics of the footprint that the authors lay out here. Uh, The the first one is uh, stable isotope anomalies of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. And this is one of the big ones, an estimated 0.5 trillion tons of fossil carbon via the burning of fossil fuels and warming of the planet. Um, they, they quote, we, ex- we expect this temperature rise to be detectable in surface ocean uh, uh, carbonates, uh, notably foraminifera. This is a single-celled organism with a, with a, with a chalky shell. Um, organic biomarkers, cave records uh, such, such as uh, stalactites, uh, lake Ostracods, these are uh, minute aquatic crustaceans and high latitude ice cores. though only the first two of these will be retrievable in the time scales considered here unquote
0: right. so this thing about the uh, the isotope anomalies of of carbon and these other elements is very interesting. so they say you know there are natural distributions that you would find records of in the different isotopes of carbon that are that are moving around in earth's atmosphere, but When people suddenly start pulling huge amounts of fossil carbon, carbon of a a biological origin, out of the ground and burning it, you suddenly start throwing those isotopes out of whack. And that mm-hmm. will be something that will leave records for millions of years to come. So you, you can look in the, the geological record, you know, the, the record of, of strata from previous eras and say, huh, for some reason in this one period deep in history, suddenly the carbon isotopes got way out of whack as if suddenly a bunch of fossil carbon like coal or oil or whatever had been burned at a, at a hideous rate into the atmosphere.
2: Right, and so you know, looking at our our time now of of, of modern human civilization, you know, this, this we have this fossil fuel consumption, and we have the invention of the Haber Bosch process, and the large scale use of of uh, nitrogenous fertilizers in agriculture, which will also heavily impact the planet's nitrogen cycling.
0: Yeah, the, the Haber Bosch process, yeah, is part of the, the the changes in the nitrogen cycle that have come about as a result of uh, uh, of uh, industrial civilization as well.
2: They also touch on uh, sedimentological records. Uh, oh. The key causes here would be major soil erosion brought on by agriculture, but also by agriculture-related deforestation. Um, now, this would be partially mitigated by dams, they point out, but erosion is also heightened by climate changes and thawing permafrost. Also, sediment content changes due to just industrialization in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, here's a, here's another big one that I, th- I think will be pretty obvious. Faunal radiation and extinctions. Um, basically, humans have brought about many extinctions already, and we're living in the midst of an extinction event. Uh, this will likely register in the fossil record.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, of course, previous major extinction events – have uh, usually been chalked up to, to natural things like, uh, oh, we can track uh, massive volcanism as, a re- uh, as the cause of this one or, say, a, uh, a large uh, space impact like at the KT extinction event. But there are other extinction events in Earth's history where the cause is not totally clear. You know, there are some speculations, but we don't know exactly why. Suddenly it seemed like there was a great reduction in marine biodiversity at this point in history.
2: All right. The next area is non-naturally occurring synthetics. So non-naturally occurring chemicals generated by industrial activity that persist in the environment. They, uh, persistent organic pollutants, uh, chlorofluorocarbons, and related compounds. And they also point out that steroids, leaf waxes, alkanones, and lipids can be preserved in sediment for many millions of years. Now, that one naturally makes
0: me think of uh, King Plastic, baby.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the next thing that they, they mention. And this one's, you know, this one's disheartening but obvious. Uh, we've created tons of plastics, tons upon tons upon tons of plastics. And they sadly persist, not only in heaps and floating masses, but inside the bodies of organisms, including ourselves. Uh, so, quote, the potential for very long-term persistence and detectability is high.
0: Now, one of the things they point out about plastic that's interesting is that plastics may well prove to be a very long-term signature of human civilization in the geologic record for you know in millions and millions of years to come. But the development of plastic is also something they would class under the – I don't remember the umbrella term they use for this, but sort of chemical contingencies – a technological civilization does not have to use plastics. Plastics are just something that humans happen to use. There are other things that seem probably more universal, like almost any industrial civilization you would expect to burn lots of fossil fuels. But plastics, that's more of a question mark. Is that unusual that we did it, or is that a very common thing that that civilizations would do?
2: All right, the next uh, area that they highlight, uh, transuranic elements. These are uh, elements having a higher atomic number than uranium, which is 92. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most radioactive isotopes created via nuclear energy or weaponry have long uh, half-lives, but not long enough to be a factor on the time scale that they're talking about here. But the exceptions are plutonium-244 and um, curium-247. So plutonium has a half-life of uh, 80.8 million years and curium, uh, in uh, in this case, we're talking about a half life of fifteen million years. So, in sufficient quantities of disposal, these would uh, these would uh, pop up. And uh, plutonium has no known natural causes uh, outside of an actual supernova or something like that.
0: This isotope of plutonium. Yeah.
2: Yes, this particular, yeah, plutonium yeah. two forty four. So. Um, So yeah, if you found enough of this uh, in the geologic record, that would be a sign that that something was at work. There was some sort of technological uh, atomic uh, um, enterprise that was in
0: place. Now, I guess we've already mentioned earlier that the the, the, the authors are not going to claim that there was, in fact, a a, a long-lost civilization hundreds of millions of years ago. But they do actually look at the geologic record to say – are there any things that that match these uh, criteria we've been looking at? And they do find some interesting partial matches that – though, of course, nothing really comes close to evidence that would be conclusive that there actually was a civilization. But some of these matches raise interesting questions of their own. Yeah. They don't
2: look at everything and they, they point out that things like the KT extinction event. We know that that was not an industrial accident or, yeah. <laughs> or anything. Um and, uh, and, and again, they're not arguing that these are evidence of past pre-human industrial civilizations on Earth, but merely point to them as the sorts of events we might look at.
0: Yeah, and I would say the biggest one that they focus on in the paper is the event known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, or PETM.
2: Yeah, this is an abrupt spike in carbon and oxygen isotopes near the um Paleocene-Eocene transition, uh 56 million years ago, resulting in a 5 to 8 Uh, degrees celsius global average temperature rise this is widely thought to be due to uh, well i think there there are different theories Uh, one is that it's volcanic activity um, but uh, there have also been um, hypotheses put forth that it could have been a comet impact it could be due to burning peat methane uh, uh, being released and a few other candidates Um, it's also used as a means of of understanding and kind of of modeling out the effects of climate change uh, during our own era
0: Yeah, and and one of the reasons this one gets singled out is uh, so it really looks like okay, here we're seeing, for example, these. carbon isotope signature changes that would signal that huge amounts of biogenic carbon, carbon that originally came from life forms, like the stuff you would find in fossil fuels, is being burned and released into the atmosphere. Now, how would that happen if uh, if, if, it wasn't creatures from the Black Lagoon with leather face masks <laughs> d- digging up a, a bunch of fossil fuels and burning them for their civilization? Well, no, you probably don't need to jump to that conclusion uh, because there, there are other – solutions on offer. Like for example, there might've somehow been lots of access of uh, volcanic magma to beds of fossil fuels. Maybe certain types of uh, volcanic activity tended to set a light to a lot of uh, natural reserves of fossil fuels and shale beds and things like that. And this almost acted as if the earth itself were, were setting off an industrial revolution, but it was just volcanoes interacting with, uh, w- with these reservoirs of carbon in the ground.
2: Yeah, uh, all you need is geologic upheaval and volcanic activity, and again, um, our, our planet has a, has, a, has a very uh, active geological life. Uh, so uh, there's plenty of opportunity for this sort of thing to potentially have taken place. So it kind of comes back to a problem with the signal here. The the signal we would be looking for in the the geochemical record, in many cases. The, the very sort of signal we're looking for, especially concerning carbon and warming, could have also been caused by these naturally occurring causes. And so strong signals might be coming from something else, and more specific signals that we might look to just might be too weak uh, to, to
0: ever possibly observe or to really make much out of. Oh, yeah. Th- this is an interesting paradox they talk about in their conclusion. Of all of the criteria they're able to come up with in this framework for, for looking for uh, past industrial civilizations – the stuff that you would expect any industrial civilization to do also has other explanations and so so it's not conclusive that it was an industrial civilization that this would be things like you know the carbon stuff meanwhile the stuff that would be really strong evidence of of uh, an intelligent civilization origin that stuff that civilizations might not do—it's more contingent. Things like plastics and stuff. You know, you could have a civilization without plastics. That's not a necessary milestone in the in the progress of of energy harnessing.
2: And maybe it's even the sort of thing uh, an advanced civilization would move away from. Coming back to that, uh, the sustainability paradox. Uh, one one could hope, I imagine. Now, the authors again—they're very clear uh, about just how far you should take this hypothesis, uh, stating that quote. Uh, the Silurian hypothesis cannot be regarded as likely merely because no other valid idea presents itself. Uh, so they, they admit that this, this sort of thing could easily get out of hand with folks pointing to any sort of signal in the geochemical record as being possible proof of prehuman technological societies. Uh, if you're doing that, you're, you're really taking it and running with it in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, I guess that's one of the frustrating things about, uh, about interesting work of this kind is so you can point out a lot of the ways that it's difficult to rule out uh, uh, past civilizations, but then for a lot of people who just want to have a theory that changes everything, you know, for a lot, it's just like, it's fun to believe that. So a lot of people just want to believe it. I want to believe, you know, that there was an Atlantis mother civilization that birthed everything, or I want to believe that there were aliens on earth before humans or, or anything like that, because that would change everything. And it feels so cool to believe it therefore becomes your default belief, and so thus a, a paper that says, "Well, it's more difficult to rule out that kind of thing than you might think." Uh, th- some people can erroneously conclude that that is in fact evidence for the thing they want to believe because it feels cool. It's not positive evidence for it.
2: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So so you know they argue that that we need to to further research uh, you know the likely signature. Uh, Left by our own um, Anthropocene era, as well as a deeper exploration of the elemental and uh, um, compositional anomalies uh, that we find in extant sediments. Uh, Basically, we look at past events mainly with stuff like impacts in mind. Uh, but perhaps the Silurian hypothesis needs to be at least on the table as well, not because, again, uh, we think it is, uh, you know, uh, actually a valid explanation for what has happened. Um, you know, it, ultimately, it's an outside possibility, not a conclusion we should jump to, but perhaps it should just be part of sort of the spectrum of possibilities there. Uh, again, not because we think it happened, but because uh, it gives us a little more of a sort of a robust spectrum in how to interpret these things. and. And then moving forward to you know, potentially considering other worlds, looking at other planets, uh, like even Mars, uh, mm. it gives us one more tool, one more
0: uh, uh, way to look at the evidence. Yeah, exactly. They're not arguing this because they think there was a civilization. It's that we should consider these possibilities when looking at planets, even including our own, and know what we would look for if we wanted to consider that possibility. Right. Yeah, because ultimately, this is not a supernatural
2: <laughs> explanation. Right. This is ultimately, uh, you know, a natural hypothesis. But
0: um, but it is admittedly an outside possibility. Now, of course, we're here talking about reasons why you shouldn't just jump to the conclusion of a Silurian civilization. Uh, but, but there are also some arguments against it in some of the specific uh, events that they look at. For example, if, you know, maybe the best uh, – possibility is this interesting event in earth history the paleocene eocene thermal maximum where suddenly there was there was rapid global warming and uh and uh these in these chemical changes like with carbon isotopes they they even put some uh, arguments back against considering uh, uh civilization as a cause of this global warming in in earth's history because they say look uh the kind of global warming caused by our civilization is happening in an incredibly rapid mm-hmm. fashion over just a few hundred years. This actually, though it's, it's relatively rapid in geologic terms, the, the uh, PETM actually happened probably over hundreds of thousands of years, mm. which, is, which is incredibly slow. If you're imagining that civilization was the cause of it.
2: right? If you're, if you're comparing it to the model of,
0: of human industrial advancement, It's incredibly slow. So there's not only the point that you shouldn't just jump to the conclusion of uh, there was a lost civilization because it feels cool, but like in the specific instances they look at, there are some reasons for thinking that's probably not true. I don't know. I guess unless those civilizations were like just really lazy. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can sort of, you know, pull out your sci-fi hat and and put it on and come up with various ideas of, you know, for why they might've been this way. Maybe they were super long lived. Yeah. They weren't very ambitious. And they're like this, no, this is the right level of industrialization. And we want to, uh, we need to keep going at this rate. I don't know. They didn't reproduce all that much. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that's ultimately one of the problems with, with imagining, uh, you know other life forms. This is, like it's just you know, it's, just, uh, it's it, you can you can make a case for any number of things, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and try and make it fit your your hypothesis. And of course, that's not really the way to go about it. I mean, not in from a scientific perspective. From a you know sci-fi dreaming creative perspective, yeah, go for it. Um, though, uh, though, I guess uh, it, it does kind of come down to the conundrum too. At the end of the day, like like when does when does mere creativity and, um, and dream weaving become this kind of corruption of our thought and uh, mm-hmm. and, and a pollution of our ability to understand uh, our place in the world and our where we're going in the future and where we were in the past?
0: Well, you know, I feel like a thread without maybe inten- intending to do so that we've pursued a good bit on this podcast is understanding the – ideally the difference between your sort of interest and imagination and your epistemology – that like, that an idea, you can like an idea because it's interesting and cool, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's true, <laughs> you know, that yeah. like the, your, your epistemology is probably best to base on evidence and uh, you should be skeptical of things that you want to believe because you like them and so forth. But it's still totally valid to like, say, be interested in the bicameral mind or whatever, because it's a fun idea, even if, you know, you probably accept it as, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for it. Right,
2: right. You can you can ultimately engage in a number of these ideas as, as more as art than science, yeah. and there, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. It's when you start arguing that your art is science, yeah, uh, that's where you can get into, into some trouble. Um, I, I was reminded in all of this of um, Carl Sagan's uh, approach to ancient aliens and ancient mm-hmm. astronauts, uh, particularly in the book that he co-authored with uh, Joseph uh, Schlossky, Intelligent Life in the Universe. Um, in, in this particular book, you know, they, they examined this idea. They said, okay, here's this speculative idea, and we don't have evidence that it ever happened. But if it were to have happened, what sorts of specific evidence might we look for? And in this case, we're talking about signs that are evident in ancient religions and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Uh, and I thought that was a great treatment of that question. Uh, and again, Sagan's treatment reminds me of the treatment given uh, in this paper by these authors. But of course, Sagan had to come back and continue to argue with the ancient alien uh, people <laughs> right. who were you know, very much going off in their own direction. It is true, yeah. Yeah, and pushing, pushing art as science. And Sagan having to remind them like, no, I, I love art as much as the next guy, but here's how we approach this from a scientific uh, perspective.
0: Well, I mean, I think the important thing about the stuff like uh, Sagan's work on that, or, or or the paper we're looking at here, is it's good to when you're when you're exploring like a tantalizing and juicy idea, it's a good idea to have uh, criteria for what would be good evidence of of such mm-hmm. a thing before you're actually looking at individual evidence and in cases. Because if you look at the evidence first and then you try to come up with criteria you're going to have a tendency to want to fit your criteria to whatever evidence you've already got, the, the cherry-picking model. Right. Or what is is uh, the other name, the the barn wall fallacy or something like that? I don't remember <laughs> the, the idea is like, you know, somebody says, you know, I'm a great shot. And so they shoot at the side of a barn and then uh, they go up, they walk up to their bullet hole and then they draw a bullseye perfectly around it.
2: No, that's, that's a great point. That, that's a great way of looking at it. All right. Well, I guess we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, Love to hear from any Doctor Who fans who have uh, some additional uh, information they want to share about the uh, Silurians and uh, various related um, species that have popped up in that show. And perhaps you have uh, specific thoughts about uh, about you know just this this basic uh, you know view uh, and and what it reveals about uh, humanity's. place on earth right now and what uh, technological civilization is uh, is doing to the planet and uh, just you know ultimately what kind of a you know a small blip uh, a weak signal we may be in the future as opposed to this kind of lasting thing that we sometimes imagine that uh, human civilization is
0: I'm going to say I hope that uh, I'll be optimistic. So I hope we do stick around. I hope we attenuate the kinds of geologic signal we leave due to uh, climate change and chemical alteration of the atmosphere and all, you know, stuff like that, uh, and, uh, you know, heavy metal pollutions and things. And that uh, we, the signal of our civilization can always be charted against the geologic record because of the continuance of Doctor Who seasons. <laughs> so when we're on the, like, you know, eventually we'll get into the exponential notation of the Doctor Who seasons.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one day, uh, some sort of uh, ancient, uh, or, or rather, uh, some sort of uh, far-flung future uh, civilization will look back and say, look, uh, clearly they knew what they were doing. Uh, they were able to do, um, you know, some
0: uh, uh, you know, three million years of Doctor Who. Though maybe at a certain point, the Doctor will be a robot and the enemies will be will be organics. I, I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I wonder. At what point do we get a robot doctor? I mean, they, they've only you know, recently really been, been, been mixing up the, uh, the, the casting on that role. All right. Well, let us know. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, uh, we do listener mail where we hear from uh, from you, the listeners, uh, and we, we read your various listener mails. Always a good time. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And then on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious uh, issues and just talk about a weird film.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
1: stuff to blow your mind is a production of iheart radio for more podcasts from iheart radio visit the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows
0: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus.
2: Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild.